Well, again, it's good to be with you, and I, I didn't even introduce myself earlier. I'm Joel, one of the pastors, and excited to start a new series with you today uh, entitled, I Am Transforms Who I Am. And we're going, going to be able to look at that, the fact that here's Jesus, what we're going to discover in the Gospel of John. He uses seven metaphors, seven I Am statements to describe who he is. And so can I invite you to go ahead and take your Bible, if you have one, if not, we have plenty sitting around, some in the back, you can always get one, or open up even your phone if you keep a a Bible app there, Uh, John chapter 11. And I am beginning, there's seven I am, seven different metaphors that are used in the Gospel of John to describe who Jesus is, to help us to have a greater understanding of who Jesus is. Um, And I'm actually beginning with the fifth one. So starting next week, I'm going to go back to the first one and then run through the rest. The reason I'm doing that is because it flows directly out of of what I was able to preach about last week, which is one of the seven miracles that we find in the Gospel of John. And last week, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And this is right before he went into Jerusalem for the very last time, before he is to give up his life and to die and then to experience the resurrection as he conquered death himself. And so we're going to be able to look at this. I am is really the primary way, even in the Old Testament, that God would describe himself. To, he would say, I am who I am. I am the great I am. I am who you say I am. And we start to evaluate, we start to learn that when it comes to what Jesus was saying in the Gospel of John, it's not just an adjective that we give to him, but he does use these metaphors to help us to have a greater understanding of who Christ is. In fact, when we think about God or or Jesus, either one, we may think of certain words like faithful or strong, consistent, um, loving, kind forgiving. And then in the Gospel of John with the I am's, we have things like, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and and then the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the light of the world. And so all of a sudden, we have a different way of starting to think about who God is and about who Jesus is. And I tell you right, right now, we need for the I am to transform who we are. Oh, man, we need it more than ever before. To be very bold and very direct, I believe that the people who claim to be the church, not being the church, is one of the reasons we're in the situation we're in. And so we have an opportunity today to evaluate the I am's to go, okay, how do I allow that to transform me? How do I allow that to change me? And so that's what we get to do today, knowing that God uses this phrase, this I am, to describe his identity, to help us know more of who he is Because the greater understanding we have of God, the more we will then allow God to transform us, to change us. But I even gave you those I am's right there, there in the notes. Whether you need to print those off at home or if you're here with us today, uh, you see those seven I am's. And I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. Why not, right? Um, Read through each of those at least once a week over the next seven weeks. I give you the passage there in the Gospel of John. I give you those I am statements so that you can begin to allow that 
to massage your heart. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear truth, especially if it rubs me the wrong way, I kind of need it to massage my heart a little before I I really take it in and go, okay, I'm going to let this change me a little bit. If somebody came up to you and say, hey, I think you should change something, like right away we we might get a bit defensive and we need it to massage our heart a little bit first. And so if we can just jump into the word of God, that's often what it does. It starts to massage our heart and prepares us for a change, a transformation that is to come. So I want you to be able to have that opportunity. Now, um, let me jump into John chapter 11 right now. Um, because they've told me, let's, they've told me like, Pastor, we need you to be a little more uh, brief today. And we need you to, you know, we're going to have to get in and out a little bit faster. And I just laughed. I was like, do you know? <laughs> Hello. Um, so we're just going to, you know, we might be here a while, but I don't have another service until 7 tonight. You guys good with that? Amen? Jumping through the word. I just got a woo. Yeah. I like it. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Here we go. Here's what's been taking place. Again, you can go back and listen to the message from a week ago talking about Jesus actually raising Lazarus from the dead. We were able to look at that miracle. Um, But here, again, I want want to make sure you, you process some of the different dynamics that's happening. Jesus has been revealing his power over and over. That was the seventh miracle, as I've already mentioned, that is walking through the Gospel of John. And we see Jesus showing his power, demonstrating his strength and his ability to do miracles, whether it's turning the water into wine, uh, whether it's helping a blind man to see again or feeding the 5,000 or walking on water. He does all these different miracles And then he comes to one where he's raising someone from the dead, knowing that next week, basically, he's going to raise, he's going to to conquer death himself. So this is a huge thing. And people knew about this. He's only a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem as he's approaching that city for the last time because it's, it's about to be Passover. And so he's entering this season in which everybody's crowding into Jerusalem and everybody's watching what he's doing and exactly how he's doing it. And when we look at what he's, he is taking place here, we know that Jesus and Lazarus, those guys are friends. And even Mary and Martha, who are the sisters of Lazarus, they are also friends with Jesus. And understanding that friendship is important because Jesus had heard about Lazarus being sick. And yet it tells us that when Jesus found out that he, still, he stayed two more days where he was. Now, you got a friend who's sick, and yet he's staying where he is for two more days. So he does that very thing, and he then lets his disciples know, hey, listen, this is happening so that the glory of God may be revealed. We see that at the beginning of John chapter 11. So these things are unfolding before us. And yes, he's close to this entire family. And it forces us to now recognize that he looks at the disciples and he says, hey, let's go now to go see Lazarus. And he lets them know that he's, he's already dead and that he's done that so that they may believe. That, that Lazarus is dead so that they may believe. And, and so even the disciples and the followers are probably incredibly confused right now about, wait, I don't understand. I, this isn't making sense to me. And so we jump in. To continue this story in John 11, 17 through 27. And I want to read this for us right now. It says, now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Say four days. Got to remember this. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, so it's not far at all. Just think of it as being down the hill from Jerusalem. And so here he is, and all these people would have been around. Um, And it says, many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Now, um, it was a Jewish custom for people to mourn uh, for 30 days when they would lose a brother or a sister or something like that. They would mourn for up to 30 days and others would come and mourn with them. So people were coming from Jerusalem and other places around uh, and to mourn with them. They grieved the loss of Lazarus. Why? Because he had been in the tomb for how many days? All right. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, Martha is a person who wants everything controlled, and she's the one who's going to make sure, hey, listen, you can't go sit there. We've got stuff to do. She wants, right? And yet now, even though you typically would not leave the house because of mourning, she's the one to leave the house to go see Jesus because Jesus is coming, and Jesus had not been there, and so her brother had died. Crazy drama, isn't it? It's like, wow, okay. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she, met, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, it ends with this giant question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are the Son of God who is coming into the world. So as we look at this, there, there are certain things that we need to process. Here's Jesus. He's coming in. Here comes Martha, runs out. And right away, Martha, who is typically, I would say, that she's a rule follower. Like, I've got several kids. I have some of, some of my kids are like, anything goes, let's just go have fun. Anybody have one of those kids? Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, here they go. Right? Just, you just got to put a leash on them. Um, or a shot collar or something. Um, I'm kidding if you don't know me. I'm kidding. Everybody laugh. Ha ha. Thank you. See, they know I'm just kidding. Um, but then I have a couple more kids who they're like everything is like needs to be fair and everything needs to be followed. Here are the rules. And if you go 56 and a 55, they're like, why are you going too fast? And I'm like, because Jesus told me to. And, um, you know, it's like, they just want all the rules to be followed. Well, to me, that's Martha. So here she is, though, this rule follower who, because of her pain and because of her hurt, she runs out and she's breaking the rules. That tells you the magnitude of her hurt, the magnitude, the significance of her pain. Runs toward Jesus, and he, right away, immediately, you know what she does? There's no hug. There's no nothing like that that we see at all. What we see is right away, She calls Jesus out. She calls Jesus out, immediately brings up the past, what had happened four days earlier. If you had been here, if you had been here, her her pain and 
the difficulty of walking through the loss of her brother, the difficulty of what was happening around her, it caused her to see Jesus in a certain light. And sometimes our pain and our hurt and our difficulty and our suffering and our struggles, regardless of what that is, everybody personalizes it, sometimes that causes us to see Jesus in a certain way. Sometimes we see Jesus... And we allow that to be who he is to be interpreted by our hurt rather than the freedom that he gives. That's why people ask questions like, um, you know, how can a good God allow bad things to happen? Right? Because we're allowing our hurt or our view, our, our seeing of pain to go, well, then God must not be good. And we don't even begin to compute, well, then if God, but is, is God good if he gives us no choice in how we behave and how we act, if he's more the dictator? And I always throw that out to people, and they're like, well, I haven't thought about that one before. And then they, you know, some people go, well, shouldn't everybody, if everybody should just act a certain way. Well, then what, def- what defines the way we should act? The word of God is what defines the way we act. That's why we give this a biblical authority, a worldview for us. So here comes Martha allowing her past, her pain, to hinder her and I think to prevent her from truly seeing who Jesus is. And you're going, well, is that really true? Just hear me out and you're going to see what I'm talking about. What we see, John chapter 11, verse 21, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. If you look at her words, her other words, and her response, the way she responds to who Jesus is, you're going to know that that's what I call. I grew up in, a, I grew up in small Baptist churches in the south or large churches in small counties, cities kind of thing. And, and we call them Sunday school answers. Sunday school is this time of where you would come learn the Bible with people your age. And all I, one of the things I remember about Sunday school is if I show up four weeks in a row, I got a free piece of candy, a chocolate. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Um, you know what I'm talking about, a Sunday school answer? Like, hey, you say the right thing, but you may not actually believe it. I think that that's what's happening here. Martha, because of her religious background, her religious heritage, she knew the right answer, but she's actually hurting right now, and she's not actually living according to the answer that she's giving. She's simply stating what she has been told is right. L- listen to these words again. Martha said to her, uh, I'm sorry, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So here she is. Anything I know that you say goes. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Well, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Why? Because of her Jewish heritage and, and her religious heritage. So she knew that at the end, right, that that would happen. But how about right now? She didn't even begin to comprehend. It could happen right now. And you're going, and she doesn't even figure it out later on. In fact, if you turn over in John chapter 11, even when Jesus had wept with them and comforted them and all these different things, if you've listened to the message from last week, it says all of a sudden Jesus speaks up, tells them, and he says, take away the stone. So he's telling the people, take away the stone where Lazarus is laying. Why? Because he's already been buried how many days? 
four days. And Martha, same person, the sister of the dead man, the sister of Lazarus, says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? I mean, even later on, she still doesn't get it. And so she initially calls out to Jesus out of her hurt and out of her pain. And now she's saying the right thing, but she's not living by the right thing. The resurrection, this is what one of the things I, I just pray that we get as a church, that we get as the people of God. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ, living according to Jesus in our life, it, it's not something that we have to wait for. It's right now. Hear that, please. Because so many people are busy living a life that is still focused on self. And we claim that at one day when we die a physical death, we'll have life. But right now we can have life in the name of Jesus. Right now. And I th maybe it's because we think it's too good to be true. But the resurrection and the life isn't something we wait for. It's right now. It's like this. You can have dessert before you eat everything else. Parents, don't hate me. But today, just once, let your kids eat the chocolate chip cookie before everything else. Jesus is coming in and saying, listen, you can have the best stuff right now. Why are we waiting for a physical death to enjoy the greatness of God when God is coming already through his son. He jumped into this earth, onto this earth, and human flesh through his son, Jesus Christ, and said, I'm here. You know that's good news. Unless we're like Martha. <laughs> and we think it's something we have to wait for rather than experience right now. We don't have to keep waiting for things to get better. They can be made better right now. Because when you recognize that he is the resurrection and the life, even your perspective, the way you see hurt changes. And I've told you before, if you are part of this ministry here at Chapel Point, I used to get so angry at certain things, and now that anger has has shifted. The only time I really get angry is when it's towards Satan. But I know at the end, Jesus wins. And so this is what I want us to be able to think about. Uh, one, please know this. We, we know that declaring a truth, like that's Martha, declaring a truth doesn't mean that you live by the truth. You can say the right thing, but you have to choose to live by it. Are you living by the thing that you declare to be truth? The second thing that we've already been learning is that the resurrection and the life isn't something that we wait for. It's right now. It's not something that we wait for. It's right now. And so what does that look like for us? What happens if we actually start living as though the resurrection and the life of who Jesus Christ is, what happens if we start to live it right now, what does our life look like? 
Maybe this is going to be somewhat of a measuring stick for us to go, okay, uh, how am I doing? So I'm going to give you four things very quickly because, again, they told me I'm supposed to be um, a, little, a little shorter today, and I'm trying my best. It's not going to happen, but I'm trying. And so as I look at all of this, I, I go, what are those four things? What are four things that we can go, okay, these are ways that, for me to learn whether or not I'm living by the fact or the truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So if you would write these things down. Here we go. Four things that we will live by, that we will do if we're living as Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Four things. One, we'll actually be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. We'll be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, it was already mentioned earlier that today's Pentecost. Pentecost, seventh Sunday after Easter every single year. And it represents Holy Spirit coming and blowing. We find that in Acts chapter 2. We know that in the Old Testament, right, you, you remember that they would take the temple wherever they would go. They would have this tent, and even there would be a pillar of fire over the tent to represent the presence of God. Right? You knew all that already, right? Amen? Just say amen so you sound smart, people. Hello? And now what's happening is instead of just this one pillar of fire, you actually, every single person who claims to know Jesus Christ actually has God, that pillar of fire, over them, and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. You're now his temple. Let that soak in. That's why we say church isn't where we go. It's who we are. It's his people. It's his children. Just a couple days ago, I'm on a conference with people all over the nation, and uh, one of those speakers and answering, and people asked, is the church necessary today? And I said, the church building isn't necessary, but here's what you have to understand, is that God has called us to be, for the people of God to be with his people. And so the building just holds that for that opportunity for us to be able to come together. But we need each other. But God chooses to dwell Within each and every one of us, we are to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so amazing that we're coming back together on Pentecost. First, write down, if you would, just with be filled and controlled by the Spirit, write down 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16 lets us know, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what you are saying is that the Holy Spirit dwells within me and that you're to be controlled by nothing but that. That's, the, that's what's expected. That, that's what's expected for every single one of us. Another passage that I looked at is Ephesians 5.18. Write that one down if you would. Ephesians 5.18, it says, Do not get drunk on new wine for its debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We, what that's communicating is we are to allow nothing to control us. That's why drunkenness is wrong. We are to allow nothing to control us other than the Holy Spirit pouring into our lives. And we are now His temple as we walk forward, as we move forward. I'm so concerned with the church today that we're going, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He can do all these things so that all may believe and that the glory of God may be made known. And we're going, yeah, that's awesome for when we die physically. No, it's for right now. We are to be controlled and filled by the Holy Spirit. 
Right now, it's as though our world is eager to hate and we're to model what it is to be eager to forgive, to be eager to show mercy, to be eager to show grace, to be eager to show the love and the passion of God for his people. So it's amazing that on Pentecost, we're actually worshiping him together. And I'm praying Holy Spirit shakes this ground more than ever before. And so if you are saying, yes, Jesus is the resurrection and life, one of the ways that you know if you're really living that now or if you're just simply waiting for it is are you being controlled and filled by the Spirit? Are you being controlled by the Spirit? And if that's foreign language to you, I would encourage you to even go home today, whether you're watching online or in a different venue or right here, it doesn't even matter. Go home and say, hey, how am I being filled by the Spirit? How am I being controlled by the Spirit? Or ask each other, hey, what's one way that you think you need to be better controlled by the Spirit? Start get, get used to the language. Some of you maybe at one point never prayed with anybody else, and all of a sudden you just say, God, help this person to know your power and your strength today. And you're like, okay, I got through it. And then you do it again and again, and all of a sudden you start learning and living in what that is. We need to start speaking about being filled and controlled by the Spirit. That's one way that you know. Another thing that, man, people really can get, kind of get a little uneasy with is not only are we controlled and filled by the Spirit, but we're, we also confess sin. Second thing, we confess sin. If you're living as Jesus Christ being the resurrection and the life, you confess sin. You confess those things that are removing you, separating you from God. I, I regularly tell you that conviction is a blessing. And if you remain, I, I believe if you remain humble in spirit, that you recognize that conviction is a blessing because that's God speaking to you and letting you know things that you should be doing or not be doing in your own life. And if you're humble, you're willing to recognize that because your desire to walk more in accordance with God and with Holy Spirit filling you is greater than your desire to walk in the flesh. And so you're willing to acknowledge that. But some, of, some, some people... I'm certain nobody ever here, but some of us, we don't like to confess sin because that would be to acknowledge that we've done something wrong. And so when somebody says, hey, I don't like how you did this, or hey, I'm seeing something that I don't, I don't think is godly, you immediately go, well, you do stuff too, right? That's your response. You ever done that to somebody? You just automatically point out somebody's el somebody else's sin or weakness so that you don't have to acknowledge your own but if you're filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit, you're eager to do that. If you're living as Jesus is the resurrection and the life, it's a beautiful thing to be convicted and surrender and to confess that to God because you know that in doing so, you're removing an obstacle. And anything that allows you to step closer to Jesus is a win. Anything that allows you to take a step closer to Jesus, to relinquish one thing so that you can pick up more of who he is, that's a win. That's a victory. And so we're eager to confess that sin. 1 John 1.9. You can write that down right beside confess sin. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He's just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we confess our sin knowing that he's eager, he's faithful to forgive us, to cleanse us so that we can be made more pure and be more of the image of God. And again, 
we don't, we don't like that much today because it's like somebody telling us that we're wrong about something. And pride keeps us from acknowledging that we make mistakes and that we mess up. But God, we know, can redeem anyone from anything at any time. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, we should be eager to ask for forgiveness, knowing that he can redeem and restore and renew. Amen. So that's the second thing. Third thing, if you're, if you're, if you're living in the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life right now, here's one of the ways that you know, is that you are producing godly character. You produce godly character. This is one of the ways that you know if you're living as Jesus being the resurrection and the truth, right? If you're a healthy apple tree, right, what do you produce? I'm, I'm grateful that the three of you who answered got it right. But I'm concerned about the rest of you. Let me, let me try a different illustration, all right? If you're a healthy orange tree... What do you produce? There you go. Let me even make it better because we live in West Michigan. If you're a healthy blueberry bush, what do you produce? Amen. On top of some cereal and frozen. Like, oh, mm. that'll make me preach. Like, I'm just like, yes. If you're a healthy blueberry bush, you're producing healthy blueberries. If you are a healthy follower of Jesus Christ, you are producing more godly characteristics. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. You're producing godly character. You're producing the, uh, you can write down Romans 5, 1 through 5, where it speaks, and I just don't have time to go into all of it, but it speaks about his character and the godliness that is there and rejoicing in our sufferings because we're excited to rejoice in sufferings because then we get to look more like Jesus when we have things like endurance and perseverance grow within us. And as that endurance and perseverance comes out within us, we see that that produces character and that character produces hope. And all of a sudden we're looking a little bit more hopefully like Jesus and not as much like ourself. We produce godly character. Even the fruit of the Spirit with love and joy and patience and goodness and kindness and Galatians. We start to produce more of that in Galatians chapter 5. And it gives us an opportunity to go, man, if, if I'm living as though Jesus really is the resurrection and the life, and I'm not just waiting for it to come one day, but if I'm living in it now, I'm going to produce that. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus, so I should look more like Jesus and less like Joel. And just the hurt and the pain right now. Another passage you, you can look at, um, Ephesians chapter 6 talks about putting on the armor of God. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we need more people to throw in the armor and get ready to fight. And when I, say, when I say fight, I mean stand for Jesus Christ more than ever before and his love and his kindness and his grace. And then finally, a fourth thing that we will do if we're living as though Jesus really is the resurrection and the life. Not that we're waiting for it, but we're going to do it. And it's that wonderful word. It's called surrender. Surrender. Romans 6, 12 through 13, another passage for you to write down. says, 
do not let, I love this, Romans 6, 12, do not let sin control the way you live. Like some of us are so bent on not changing because we think we're weak if we actually allow God to transform us. Like I feel like if that's you, I feel for you because that's got to be exhausting. I would have so much fatigue. If I claim to know Jesus Christ truly is the resurrection and the life, that means I'm so eager to allow him to transform me and just to surrender. That's why we walk around here at Chapel Point with arms like this and hands wide open to say, God, whatever you want is yours. We're not going to hold on to anything. We're going to open up the fist that we want to clench so tightly to the things in our life so that we can control everything, but we don't have to control everything. We're going to surrender everything. And so whatever we have is yours. Whatever you desire is yours. It says, don't let any part, Romans 6, 12 through 13, don't let any part of your body, don't let any part of your body become, it says, a tool of wickedness. If you don't know how to speak the love of Jesus, please stop speaking. That's a tool of our body. It's the rudder of a ship. So we surrender our language. We surrender our actions. We surrender our resources. We surrender our time. We surrender our energy. We surrender our previous notions of what right and wrong is because we want nothing to dictate that except for the word of God. Why? Because he is the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in him. Well, no life. And so we surrender everything. Right? It's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body. And so we call that out and we surrender. That means, here's the thing with the greatest commandment, with the Shema. Here's the thing with it. It, it really... It forces full surrender in order to say that you live by it. It forces surrender. Right now we live in a world, I think, that would be representative of Lazarus when he was still in the grave. I think it would be representative of Lazarus when he was in there and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And his sister Martha says, no, no, Jesus, don't you understand? It's been four days. The odor, the stench is going to be so bad. There is an odor in our world and a stench in our world, but there's freedom to be had in Jesus Christ. We can walk out of the tomb. We can actually live as though Jesus is the resurrection and the life today. We don't have to wait anymore. Deserves right now. Praise God. Can we be that church? Yes or no? 
Right? Like, are, you, are you picking up what I'm laying down? Because I don't feel like it's being picked up. It's just the Word of God. I don't have to preach my ideas. I preach the Word of God because that's eternal. That's truth. There's life to be had right now. We don't have to wait anymore for it. There's life in Jesus. Right? You're following me on this. That means you're so eager to tell your neighbor about it. You're so eager to tell everybody in Grand Rapids right now that that's not the answer. You're so eager to tell the people in Minneapolis and in Atlanta and wherever it may be, there's only one answer, and his name is Jesus. Oh, I pray for revival. And so we declare his goodness. And we step out of the tomb. And we remove those things that bind our hands and our feet and that are holding us captive. And we live in the freedom of Jesus. God, I come before you. And there may be some friends that are here right now that are living in that bondage and they're still living in that tomb and they need to live in the resurrection and the life. And they, they know that's the right answer, but they don't know how to actually do it. May they know what it is to surrender, to confess their sin, to be controlled and filled by the Holy Spirit. God, have your way with us. Have your way with us. Have your way with us. Please, oh God. Amen.